0: AUN, American Underground Network. The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human God to eliminate all risk from their life, pat them on the head kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, load their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be alright when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, for the human god, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar? The public or the godfather? All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images
1: of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, the young people, the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government, they are the ones who are
0: concerned about the future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point, that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome.
2: It's the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Connett, Jr. in Cincinnati, Ohio, Steve Harris in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart.
1: Thanks, everyone, for coming back. As promised, uh, about six to eight weeks ago, we had Patrick Riot on. This is his second installment uh, of this discussion That's going to go for probably another two iterations after this into the new year, two or three iterations. And and, and at some point, uh, Patrick is going to tell us uh, this larger picture of what he has planned. Pat, thanks for coming back on and, and adding to your discussion from about, I think it was six weeks ago, five, six weeks ago.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And if you didn't get this, uh, the email has been posted. I think this is the email. I, I, I'm not sure if this is the one. Oh, gosh. I'm looking at my Finish. notes here, Patrick.
2: Yeah. Is it okay, is okay? Yeah, it's posted up there. Tell me when to break out.
1: Okay, got it. No, we're, we're
2: fine. Go ahead. The floor is yours, buddy. Okay. I. One of the frustrations I have, in in doing these shows, and I enjoy doing them because it teaches me sometimes we don't learn unless we say things. We think them, we wake up with them in the morning, and they mean certain things, and all of a sudden you find yourself explaining what you were thinking about and what you had discovered, and you realize that you had discovered something even far greater or it was all a bunch of BS and it really wasn't that good, so you don't learn I, I, my brain doesn't fully work until I speak it through, so some of what I'm going to do tonight will be redundant on the last meeting, the last get-together. I called it a lecture, and I'm not educated enough to claim the ability to give a lecture or to teach, and and in some respects, that's what I am doing, but I, I, I'd be, be kind of bragging a little bit by saying it because I don't have the credentials as a professor or what. But I am am teaching what I have learned over the last 18 years. And each time I speak these things, I do learn. And writing out the intro for tonight, I learned a little bit. And over this past few months, since our last meeting, I have learned a lot. Um, And I'm going to go back and I'm going to be redundant with some of what I spoke about the last time. Um, well, by the way, I have a washing machine going in the background. If that's making too much noise, I'll turn that off. And that, is, that a, is that a pain listening to it? I, I can't
1: hear it. Steve,
2: do you hear anything? Good. Okay, then I'll leave it go. Okay. Um, it's all good. Let's, let's deal my target, and it's a bad term to use, but it is, it is fair. My target is the Rothschild family of Great Britain and the uh, organizers of the state of Israel. That's my target, and it's, it's it definitely it's very important that I stress the fact the Jews are not my target. If anything, my target Rothschild, the family Rothschild, are the most anti-Semitic people on the face of the earth, and you can't speak to one Jew in the world and say that without getting punched because they have great faith in the Rothschilds. I think I have uncovered a blind side to the Jews. You, you can never, one of the things I would say you could never say is there is no such thing as a dumb Jew. It's an oxymoron. In the case of Rothschild and their emotional involvement with them, they're dumb. They're dumb as a box of rocks. The Rothschilds are the most anti-Semitic slime balls walking the face of the earth. Anti-Semitism predated the Rothschild family, but the Rothschilds Amplified it, put it on steroids, and have inaugurated it as a major component of their goal. And by the way, their goal—just to insert that here—they're a banking family. They deal with bonds, and their goal is to have a mortgage, a mortgage on every square inch of planet Earth. That is their goal. That. I can prove that as we go along. It's not going to be proven tonight. But the goal they have is to own the earth. In the same form that you will find the earth owned by God if you go to the book of Leviticus in the Hebrew Testament, the Old Testament. In in the book of Leviticus, you have a term called jubilee. Jubilee has a meaning. Has really three meanings. Jubilee means return of property to its rightful owner, means the freeing of the slaves and the forgiveness of debt. And it's based on the concept that God owned the earth, owns the earth. And somewhere, and here's where it's unclear in the book of Leviticus. Somewhere, a human was given the opportunity to be God's agent and rents the property out on a seven- to a 49-year basis to a tenant, a farmer, who will never own the earth that they farm. They're sharecroppers. That's the term jubilee in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, the Hebrew book of Leviticus. Rothschild takes that term... And has conceived of it over 200 to 300 years ago as his goal, not for the purpose of being the agent of God, but for being his own agent and being able to dictate to the world what's done in order to live on the land he owns. He knows how to form a bond, how to create a bond, and a mortgage is effectively a lien. Supports the note. Is a bond. Rothschild's very familiar with bonds. As of tonight, Rothschild has a brand new name. He's the bond father. Let's call the son of a bitch what he is. Now, in dealing with this person Rothschild, you have to understand there's generations of Rothschilds. This started in excess of 300 years ago. Rothschild was born someplace around 1555. That name didn't it didn't exist in 1555. The name was Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, and he changed it to Rothschild in, I think, the early, oh, maybe the 17, but at least by the early 1800s. Rothschild really means red shield, which was the family emblem, and the brilliance of that man said, I need a more... Oh more king like name. So Rothschild was taken and used going forward. Bauer. Bauer is almost the German word for farmer and they detest people at work in farms, work with their hands. They don't detest them, they just don't respect them. Rothschild's history comes from the family name Bauer in Germany. Rothschild we're talking about today. Goes back into 1555, maybe a little bit later, and was a clerk in the Oppenheim banking family and watched what was taking place. Very astute. Came out of that, lent money to, uh, I want to say, William of Hess. I really forget the, the, the title. And... Uh, gave him, I want to, I'm trying to remember, it was uh, stamps, stamps or other memorabilia from previous cultures, and they took a liking to him, and then William of Hesse was sent from his kingdom, and he gave Rothschild, I think, about three million marks to hold because he trusted him. and he not only held them, he invested them against the agreement, but he made very, very much money, and that money was the basis for what Rothschild did going forward, of 1555 into the 1700s. Rothschild, guy, lent money as a bank would lend money, but he lent money, lent money specifically to kingdoms that were venial and broke after the kingdom suffered an incursion on their borders. Their sovereign borders were being threatened by a neighboring kingdom. Rothschild looked at this, and he was lending money to these kingdoms to hire an army because the kingdoms didn't have a standing army. It wasn't something they did in those days unprotected, the kingdom would suffer and lose, and the king would be literally out of business if not beheaded. The kingdom would borrow money from whoever they could borrow at a good rate if they could, and they would hire mercenaries to protect their borders, and some would win and some would lose. My child was a good student of this, and he said, if I can cause conflicts artificially, I can lend money to the kingdom who is threatened. If I can lend money to both sides of the conflict, I can declare the winner. That was the way the Rothschild enterprise started. It was a business model. It was a very simple business model, unseen. Those were pre-Marconi, pre-Apple phone texting days. Those were days when things happened and no one knew why they happened. They just knew they happened. They knew there was a war going on. They knew their borders were threatened. They knew troops were at their border. They assumed the troops were from the kingdom next door, and they could have been or might not have been. But no one knew that Rothschild's agents were out inciting the, the conflict. Then Rothschild would conveniently show up and say, is there a way I might help? The kingdom would say yes. I need 20,000 soldiers and I haven't got the funds, and Rothschild said, no problem. I can get you two million guilders, whatever the currency was, and you can hire your Hessian or your military at will. And That was being done on both sides of the conflict. Eight months, two years after the conflict started, 2,000, 12,000 people were dead. One of Rothschild's agents would go to one of the kingdoms and say, hey, how would you like to win this conflict? The king would look and say, of course I want to win. it. What are you talking about? Of course. And the party who represented Rothschild, unbeknownst to the king, would say, I think I can make the arrangements for you to win this conflict, but you'll have to agree to promises. And the king would say, what two promises? Well, if you win, you've got to agree to pay the debts of the vanquished. The king would say, well, I'm going to have all that new taxing power. I'm going to have 300,000, 700,000 new subjects. Of course I'll pay the, the debts of the vanquished. What's the second thing I have to do? The second thing was more difficult. You'll have to keep the borders between the two kingdoms the same. You can't be victorious to the point of the extreme and taking it all over. And the king would say, why? I'm going to win. If you help me win, I win. I, I own that kingdom. My child's agent would say, no, then I can't help you win. You'll have to agree to leave their borders in touch and strike a, a peace deal between your neighbors. show mercy and show that you're a compassionate leader. The kingdom would say, the king of this kingdom would say, I don't know about that. Within a day, the king would capitulate and say, if you can help me win, I will do that also. The reason was, hidden behind the scenes, no kingdom was allowed to gather enough ground and enough taxation power so that he wouldn't have to borrow Rothschild money on the next conflict. Very clever business model. A very effective business model. Simple in this discussion. Very complex three and 400 years ago. Very complex. And, actually, very simple in its own right. That's how Rothschild gained traction and gained prestige and gained power was starting a war between two forces and stepping forward at the right time to lend money to the kingdoms. And then he would create the victor. He would create the vanquished. They would pull the financing from the king that was going to lose. That king could no longer employ his mercenaries. A simple business plan and a beautiful business plan. It evolved over time into something even far greater, and I won't get into that tonight. So you have to understand, the Rothschild banking enterprise was not a banking enterprise. It was a war-making enterprise. It was a business model. They made a product. They solved the problem. and They gained more power. And they repeated and repeated and repeated and duplicated and duplicated. And that's the way Europe developed over 300 years. My child came to understand the need for central banks 300 years ago. He said, you know, if we can create a monetary system within this kingdom, and I can control the regulations and the rules of that monetary system, I can have maybe even more power. He understood human nature. Also, he understood the vanity of the kings and how they would spend money ir- recklessly and and bankrupt their kingdom if they weren't careful. He understood human nature. But first and foremost, the Rothschild enterprise was a was a warrior enterprise. It was not a banking enterprise. They used debt to gain power. It was not a banking enterprise with the hopes of solving people's problems. It was a banking enterprise to create the debt to give them the power over the kingdom. It was watching and following some of Machiavelli's information from the Prince*. It goes back to the 1400s. In the 1700s, the American colonies were getting itchy, jumping forward on you. And there was frustration and stress between the king, or if you will, the crown, and Britain, and the colonists. We were 3,000 miles away across the Atlantic Ocean. Ships would come and go. Redcoats would come and be stationed. We were still a growing country with more and more power. The king's lowering or lessening of ability to control us. There isn't anyone on this line, whether it's two of you or 222 of you or 2,022 of you, that doesn't remember the term Boston Tea Party. The Boston Tea Party was a big rout, a riot in Boston Harbor because the Crown wanted to put a 1% tax on tea. 1%, just 1%. Thomas Paine wrote, the Common Sense Newsletter, the, the pamphlet, the pamphleteer he was known as, and he talked about this terrible thing, this 1% tax. When you stop and understand that 1% tax was the trigger point to the revolution, and it was, you wonder how in the world did the founders of our nation write a constitution that did not empower our federal government to collect an income tax, but only excise taxes, how did the founders ever believe or could believe that we would have a term in our lives today in 2022 known as Tax Freedom Day? Tax Freedom Day means for different things for different people. Some people it's April 15th, others it's July. Some people it may not happen till September because they earn so much money but they earn it, and it's income to them. It's their personal private property. Tax Freedom Day means you're working for the federal government from January until July or September, or on the average basis, January through the end of February into March. No one in the group of founders that wrote that constitution, especially Thomas Paine, would have ever realized or accepted 20, 15, 35% taxation of your income, no one. We live it, we watch it. Excise taxes still exist anyhow. We still pay an income tax because we are manipulated. And my lecture this evening is not about the income tax. It is, however, about how Rothschild, child over the centuries impacted our nation, changed our laws with clever lawyers, and have us engaged not with the law, but the law of contracts. We have contracted with our federal government to pay that income tax. There is no law to pay an income tax, but we have been tricked into a contract, which is what you sign when you open a checking account. That's the deepest I'll go into that tonight. The law of contracts is fatal. But that binds us to pay an income tax, collecting a pension from the federal government. If you go to Title V, Section 552A, A, 13, you will find out if you are subject to collecting any pension from the federal government, you are a federal employee. You are under the jurisdiction of the federal government. You are not a free citizen. All thankful to Rothschild. Why? Rothschild instituted the Federal Reserve on December twenty third, 1913, here in the United States. Now, now, we're going to go back in history, about 18, uh, let's make it 1796. Remember so far, what I'm teaching here is Rothschild bankers are not bankers. They are war makers. They have all the appearances. They have all of the pertinences, everything that makes them look like bankers. They are not bankers. They start conflict. They'll never be seen. They will always be in the background nudging, N-U-D-G-I-N-G, nudging an elbow to the back of somebody who will put the elbow to the back of someone else. But Rothschild or his warriors will never be seen in the front end of it until recently we see them. Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler, and so on and so on. But up until this last 10 to 12 years, you couldn't see a Rothschild soldier in the front lines. There would always be somebody not knowing they were doing Rothschild's bidding. Useful idiots. Nancy Pelosi. Useful idiot. An ugly, hateful woman. Democrat. Let's go back to eighteen thirty six. At the end of eighteen thirty six, that was the termination. Second Bank of the United States, the second attempt to have a central bank with a 20-year charter. The first one started in 1796. It ended in 1816, and they said, no, we won't renew the charter. And then before the year was out, they said, we do need a central bank. We need a bank. So they chartered a second bank of the United States for 20 years again in 1816. It came to an end in 1836. 1837, a 24-year-old clerk, a confidential clerk from the Rothschild Banking House in Hamburg, was sent by Rothschild to Cuba. He never made it to Cuba. He came in directly to New York in 1837. At that point in time, we had one major political party. We had the Democratic-Republican Party, as formed by Thomas Jefferson, we had the Whigs, Tories party but you had one major party which was holding our country together and that was the Democratic Republicans and it's important to note that the word Democratic is an adjective the word Republicans is a noun because we are a republic we're not a democracy a major major distinction from what we're being called today we are not a democracy we never were a democracy we are not a democracy, and if we have Republican leadership with balls, we will never be a democracy. Democracies go bankrupt. We already have done that once. Well, so, in 1837, a confidential, 24 year old confidential cart from the House of Rothschild was sent to Cuba and landed in New York. His name was August. Schoenberg. Now, there's a lot of background noise. Am I interrupting somebody? If you could please uh, mute your phone, star six
1: your phone, everyone, out of respect for our guests. Sorry about that. All
2: right, okay. I hear the noise and it is distracting. So, August Schoenberg arrived here in 1837, one year after the end of the charter of the Second Bank of the United States, and Rothschild was determined to have a central bank in the United States for a variety of reasons. He served the crown. He was in Britain. He had sent five children to the five centers of Europe, to Naples. Paris, they were in Hamburg already, they had control of a fair amount of national debt in those locations. And wherever there was a conflict, unseen to anybody, Rothschild was involved in starting the conflict, because the conflict would lead to the borrowing of money and the indebtedness of the government involved unseen in those days, known about today. I'm not telling you something that's not known about today. It's not known in great detail, but it's known. We had two attempts at a central bank. Both of them ended in the chartering of the banks. They ended the charter ended in 1836 was the last charter, the second charter to end. In 1837, August Schoenberg shows up, not with a lot of money. But conveniently, we have a market problem a crash of our markets. And in a short period of time, young 24-year-old August Schoenberg emerges a very wealthy individual because he played the market properly. Because whatever was happening to the market was being manipulated. Like we watch our markets today, they are manipulated. For the most part, they're let to run their own course and at a in time that they need to be manipulated, such as in 1929, they're manipulated. They were manipulated in 2007, starting in 1981, leading to the mortgage meltdown and 9-11. There's a great deal of knowledge and detail in that that I cannot go into right now. But our markets are manipulated, not on a day-to-day basis, but for the big things that happen. They are manipulated, and they're manipulated by very, very few people. August Schoenberg arrived without much money and emerged within a year a very wealthy man at age 25, 26. Very wealthy. There's a good story on Wikipedia about August Schoenberg, and some of it's true and most of it's bullshit. As Mr. Schoenberg went along and forward, funny things were happening. Slavery was becoming a major point of disagreement between what we call the North and the South. More importantly, what we call the United States government the South. So. He arrived in 1820, 1837, and by 1860, we're on the verge of what's called the Civil War. More importantly, a few years earlier, the Democratic Republican Party split in two because of the friction between those people that believed in slavery and those people that did not. Well, more importantly, those people that were racists and those people that were not. Because when the Democratic Republican Party split into two, the Democrats, or more importantly, they like to be called the Democratic Party, an adjective, remember that, it's not an adverb, it's not a noun, it's an adjective, it's descriptive of what the nation is. It's a Democratic Republic. The Democratic Party, on its own, was known in those days as the Slavery Party. It was also known as the Lynching Party. The Democratic Party membership created the Ku Klux Klan. They were racist through and through, right all the way through to Lyndon Baines Johnson, to Barack Obama, to Joe Biden today, and Nancy Pelosi, a good Catholic woman from Baltimore. Now in San Francisco. Racist, true and true. And it's unfortunate that today so many good people happen to be Democrats following party leadership, not understanding the racism that they are guilty of. And I will continue to educate you about those specifics. They are not theoretical, they are specifics. By 1860, Democratic Party had had two chairpersons, ceremonial. Useless. No power. They were the chairperson of the Democratic Party, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, by 1860, don't you know it, but we have a third party chair, chairman, who becomes more than ceremonial, but quite effective and quite powerful in directing the Democratic Party. name is August Schoenberg. He has then changed his name to August Belmont. He gentrified his name. He's the same August Schoenberg sent in 1837 by the Rothschild Banking Enterprise in Hamburg to go to Cuba, which he never went to, landed in New York, and emerged from a crash of the markets as a very successful, profitable man within a year or two at age 25 or 26. Oh, my goodness. How Coincidental. Isn't that wonderful? Rothschild managed to send a man here with no money who emerged from a market catastrophe. Very wealthy. Gee, I wonder how that happened. From 1837 to 1860, 23 years go by and a number of things happen. The Democratic or Republican Party splits in two over racism. Racism, racism, racism. The Democratic Party are the champions of slavery. The Republican Party are the champions of freedom. Democrats today are still champions of slavery. They want to build a dependent voter base. Republicans have always wanted to build an independent voter base. This is a free nation. Freedom means you get out and you develop success. We want to do everything to make you successful. We don't want anything going on to encourage unsuccessful behavior. The Democratic Party only encourages unsuccessful dependent behavior, then and now. In 1860, August Belmont now, previously known as August Schoenberg from the Rothschild Bank in Hamburg, August Belmont is a powerful figure in the Democratic Party as a chairperson. And we go to war. We go to war where 700,000 Americans, brothers, family, fathers, and children are killed. We'd go to war between what is traditionally known as the North and the South as opposing each other. Not true, a lie, a distortion of history, a classic example of the people who control things right to history. Civil war was fought between the federal government and the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was a tyrannical, treasonous entity, both then in eighteen sixty as it is today. There's nothing different about then and today. Seven hundred thousand American lives perished in a war between both parties federal government and the Democratic Party because nobody could convince the government to form a central bank to make the Rothschild enterprise happy. That's why we had a civil war. We didn't have a civil war over slavery or racism. It was instituted as the cause. Had we permitted Rothschild to write the regulations, not the ownership. They never looked for the ownership. To write the regulations to form a central bank in the 1840s, in the 1850s, that civil war would never have happened. It was another case of coming to bear, causing a conflict between two sides to split this nation in half. France was going to take everything west of the Mississippi, Britain would have taken everything east of the Mississippi. Russia got involved. Russia sent their fleet to the west coast and a fleet to the east coast. The Baltic and Asiatic fleets traveled in that direction, retending directions, and they got paid. They got paid because we bought a useless piece of land from Russia known as Seward's Folly, and Russia got $5 million for helping us win the Civil War. None of this will be found in our history books. This has taken 17 years to put together piece by piece by piece. The history of the Rothschild family gives them away in contemporary times. It takes us to 9-11, which I'll get to at the end of this. It is now 9.44. I'd like to cut this out. 15 minutes. I may be able to. I may not. I may run 15 minutes over time. And I hope I'm not shouting too loud for you.
1: No, you're good. Keep it up.
2: But when I get into this, I get so freaking angry. My God, I'm angry. Oh. We had a civil war between the federal government of the United States and the Democratic Party. In the 1960s, with the killings on campuses and the division over war and racism at that point in time where the intention was to get the blacks and the whites in America at each other's throat like they are doing today, it was, again, the government of the United States Against the Democratic Party. Even while they were in ruling, they felt confident since they had the control over our Congress in the 60s with the Civil Rights Act, which they did not pass. They did not pass. They voted against the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s. Nobody's got the balls to go do the statistical study on it. Less than 60% of the Democrats voted for it. They couldn't pass it with a superior number in Congress. The Republicans came to their rescue and more than 80% of the Republican Party made the Civil Rights Act happen. Democrats were racists in the 1800s and they're the racists today. They were the racists in even the 1960s. The Civil War came to an end Rothschild was deprived of a central bank. Things were moving along for Rothschild in a number of ways. He had begun to infiltrate China in 1820, about the same time Marx was born. Communism didn't exist in 1820. Communism started about a century later in 1920, but there's an interesting twist here. The Kibbutz commune, which led to communism, the Jewish concept. Multiple families lived in one home. They ate in a common cafeteria-style environment. Communal living. Social justice, socialism, government ownership of all enterprises, which would have led more quickly to the ownership of the earth. There was a concept being pushed within the Jewish communities, concept of jubilee, where there was one owner of all of the earth renting everything out to tenants that would change hands every seven or 49 years. That's what Rothschild was after, from way back even then. So in 1820, his infiltration, if you will, or involvement with China, limited as it was, because nothing he does is known to be successful at the time he tries. He works through the system, nobody sees him working, nobody sees his agents working, but that's the goal, and they're working behind the scenes. They're in front, they're making decisions, none of which are ever announced to the public as being what they are. A red China came about when Mei Zhe came into existence in 1920, and China moved forward. It isolated itself from the rest of the world until Rothschild agent Kissinger, influence Nixon, bring China back into the flow of things, because without U.S. involvement, China would never succeed. China was opened up under Kissinger, not under Nixon. That's how we got into China, and that's how we are where we are today, with China as an adversary. Stop with China right there. I'm trying to bring these all up together at the same time. We go back in the United States, we have a civil war, we have the Democratic Party constantly working to slave and people and the Republicans looking to free people in a macro way. There are many, many other moving parts in smaller ways and smaller conflicting ways. But the bottom line is the Democratic Party was the slave party and the Republican Party was the party of freedom, the anti-segregationist party, Look it up. You'll see it there, bold, big, let it out, Memorialize history before that history changes. That history will change. Another 30 to 50 years, you won't see any of this in our books. They will be removed. I guarantee that. Our children are being taught what to think, not how to think. You're watching that happen today. That's being exposed. Well, Rothschild needs a nation. He needs his own independent sovereignty. Rothschild says, let's find where our roots are. Jesus Christ was a Jew. We're Jews. Here's where it gets difficult for me, because I have great respect for the Jews just happens that this criminal syndicate happened to be all Jews. No different than the Mafia are all Siciliano or Italians. The Mafia wound up getting exposed in 1957 up in Joe Barbera's place in Appalachian, New York. Before 1957, Italians were all part of the mob. All of them, just like the Jews today, are decried and anti-Semitism prevails. This is a syndicate, a sinister confederacy, if you will, of Jews, or as Winston Churchill noticed in the London Daily Herald of 1920, in an article he wrote called Bolshevism versus Zionism, he said, this is a sinister confederacy among the Jews. He didn't say a sinister confederacy of the Jews. He said among the Jews. He was perceptive. He was wrong in some of his assessments. Zionism was an escape pod for Bolshevism. I'll say that again. In 1920, Zionism was developing. It was an escape pod in case Bolshevism failed, as it did. Twenty-three years earlier, in 1897, first World Zionist Congress took place in Basel, Switzerland. Little town. Interesting town today. But in August of 1897, three to 500 members the Zionist organization, came together in what was known as the First World, watch the word, the next word, watch the next word, the First World Congress, Zionist Congress, met for a week in Basel, Switzerland. The story is that Rothschild was invited and refused to come because he said they'll never get along and they all speak different languages, which wasn't true but we can't confirm Rothschild went there. If you read in the Virtual Jewish Library, it'll say that he never went. Whether he went or he didn't go is irrelevant. His words were spoken in the lectures. The 24 lectures have been called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. They've been decried as a forgery. They showed up about 1905 in a Russian publication, *The Great and the Small* by Sergei Sergey Nihilus. He was a Russian. A Russian. He wasn't a priest, but he had that type of a, a title, and I forget what the title was. But Sergei Nihilus wrote the book *The Great and the Small*, and within the book were the 24 lectures that were wound up being called. Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Immediately in 1905, Henry Ford looked at them and said, you know, this is what's going on in the world today. These 24 lectures, they're telling us what's going on in our world today. My God, they're true. Published 500,000 pamphlets put them in his dealerships, and distributed them for free. He was decried as an anti-Semite. There was no, by the way, no author was ever announced as being the author of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. They didn't even bring attention to the fact that they came out of this book Great in the Small. The understory of all of this is somebody declared or screamed fire at the first World Zionist Congress meetings and a copy disappeared in eighteen ninety seven. That's how they got into someone else's hands. But they've been declared a forgery ever since, with no one ever having declared that they wrote it. They went to trial in Switzerland shortly after nineteen oh five. They were declared a forgery In the 1960s or 70s, they made their way into the U.S. Congress and were declared a forgery by the FBI and by Congress. And oddly enough, the past six years, they've been declared a forgery again, but for a different reason. In the 1860s, there was a man in France called Maurice Jollet, Joly, J O L Y, Joly Joly. He was unhappy with Napoleon. And he wrote a book in third person, and he called The Dialogues in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, two philosophers. And in the book, there are 24 dialogues. They talk about finance, they talk about Politics, maneuverability, deception. That was done in 1868. It was printed in Belgium, and all the copies were allegedly seized before they could find their way into Paris or into France, and he was arrested and put in jail for 18 months. Maurice Jolet went to jail for 18 months because he printed something offensive to the Napoleon of the time. That was 1868. Approximately five to seven years ago, the leaders of Zionism have declared that the protocols of the learned elders of Zion are a forgery and they they were a copy of the dialogues in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. And the new information being used or claimed by these Zionist leaders is absolutely accurate. That book, released in 1868, is, in fact, a template for the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion and the 24 Lectures as provided in 1897 at the First World Zionist Congress, because those, those dialogues in hell produced an accurate template for how Rothschild viewed his ability to wage war going into the future. War is kinetic. War is damaging, it kills people. War destroys buildings, it destroys life. That's kinetic war. That's first generation, second generation, third generation warfare. In about the 1970s or 1980s, a man by the name of William, I think, Went or Lent, Came up with the phrase fourth generation warfare that was non kinetic. And then in the early 2000s, another man came up with the term fifth generation warfare, which was not kinetic at all no demolition, no damage, but taking countries over by way of propaganda, finance, debt, all unseen, all weapons unseen to the population of the nation being taken over. Once we understand that the protocols of the learned elders of Zion are a template of the dialogues in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, we know or suspect that Rothschild used them because he would have been able to get a copy as they were all confiscated coming into France. He would have easily been able to get a copy They were never distributed to the public at that time. And he looked at them and he said, you know, this is the way I am operating, and this is wonderful. And the protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion are, in fact, absolutely a forgery based upon that book as a template, except for one little thing. Mr. Rothschild, Created the template. He used it as a template. He created the, the protocols, and it's the protocol, the Rothschild protocols of fifth generation warfare, where you can control the press, you can control the government, where you can control the appetite in the public arena for sports and mislead through news and entertainment. All of that is in those 24 lectures. All of it. There's something else that the Protocols of 1897 contained, Maurice Jolie's 1868 book never contained. Talked about specifically guns of America and how they would be used to protect the interests of the party giving the lecture and how we defend Israel. In 1868, nobody knew about the guns of America and how it would protect Israel. But it gets even better. In the 21st lecture in 1897, information specifically was contained was not in Maurice Jolet's book of 1868. 21st lecture threatened an international default, a depression that we suffered in 1929. In the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, now renamed Rothschild's Protocols of Fifth Generation Warfare, in the 21st lecture, in the third paragraph, it talks about rigging the bids to a nation's debt and how they acquire the bonds and the investment from other nations. Rigging the bids! Well, Maurice Jolie's dialogue in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu touched any of that information. But in 1897, Threat was made to rig the bids to the debt of a nation so they would borrow more and more and more money, so that they would be borrowing money just to pay the interest on the debt like we do today, but it gets even better. Solomon Brothers, a financial giant in the United States, came on board in 1910. In 1913, the Federal Reserve was formed. In 1929, we had a depression, or I call it a Great Deception. Our economic system changed. We were a gold-based currency. Franklin Roosevelt closed all the banks in March of 1933. Closed them for a week till people screamed. And he says, okay, I'm going to open them back up, and you've got to do something for me. you got to bring all your gold, and you've got to bring your gold certificates into the bank. So the people who owned the gold, the thing that was real money, after being desperate for so many days not having commerce or the ability to conduct commerce said okay okay we'll come we'll come to the bank we'll bring our our gold and our gold certificates you're going to give us a new type of currency that's okay and they did they got a new kind of currency they got a federal reserve which was just the reverse the public had the gold and the government owed that gold to the public when the public brought all their gold and their gold certificates into the banks, that was confiscated and they were given back Federal Reserve notes, which is a note of debt that the public owed on behalf of the government to the government's creditors. It was a reversal, it was a fraud. It was a day of poor communications. The public didn't know what was taking place. It was all spoken about in 1897 in Natty Rothschild's 21st lecture. Brought it to pass brought it to a head. His threat came through. But in 1897, he made a number of other threats. Let me read one for you. In the 10th lecture in 1897, Natty Rothschild's 10th lecture, the last paragraph says the following, and I read this for you the last time I spoke. And I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. But you yourself perfectly well know that if it comes close to us being discovered, it will be indispensable for us to trouble all the countries of the world, their relationship with their government, as we are watching happen over this recent two years, it will be indispensable for us to trouble the people's relationship with their governments. So as to utterly exhaust humanity with dissension, with hatred, struggle, envy, here's where it gets real good. And even by the use of torture, by starvation, by the inoculation of diseases, by a want so that the non-Jew see no other issue than to take refuge in our complete sovereignty in money and in all else. And the very last sentence says, but if we give the nations of the world a breathing space, the moment we long for is hardly likely ever to arrive. That was the last section of protocol number 10 as given by Natty Rothschild in August of 1897 in his 24 lectures of Fifth Dimension Warfare. We are living in that man's, or that family's environment today. That was in 1897, it revolved around the Deception, as we call it, the Great Depression. It was really a great deception because it was threatened and caused. The Solomon Brothers in New York had been ringing the bids to the Federal Reserve debt for almost 50 to 70 years before they got caught. Actually, 1929,
0: 19, uh, 19
2: uh, about 60 some odd years. They got caught. They got caught doing it in 1991. Solomon Brothers brings a different light on this because Solomon Brothers moved into what was known as Building 7, notorious Building 7 at 9-11. It was the third building to collapse with nothing hitting the building and it collapsed at 521 in the afternoon after the two towers had been down seven hours. Building 7 was one of the reasons for 9-11, it wasn't one of the results. It destroyed a century of evidence. And that's what Building 7 and 9-11 were partially about. 9-11 was done also to justify our involvement on Israel's behalf in the Middle East. It was designed to justify to the American people the use of our military to take down Iraq. The goal is to destroy Iran, the major threat to Israel still alive over in the Middle East. But they're patient. And they can't be seen. Everything is done with the nudge, but the nudge is two and three people behind nudge to me is a good Yiddish word. give him a nudge already don't don't let them just stand there give him a nudge don't tell him to move up ask her to marry him do a nudge. That's what the nudge is. The nudge is used in our politics. We are a nation of useful idiots as long as we allow this to continue to happen is now, 10:08. 8 I'm going to wrap this up by 10:15. Seven more minutes. Oh, let's
1: see.
2: I think I'm going to end it there. Mr. Schoenberg. Awesome. Sorry. Everyone,
1: you can type in August schoenberg s-h-o-n-b-e-r-g
2: and he added the word belmont he changed his name right patrick he changed his name he was a champion of the democratic party he was a champion of slavery and today's history is changing on him he's looking now like he was advising the Rothschilds not to not to buy support the south he cannot erase various cartoons that were written in those days the the conflict there. They were absolutely on the side of the South promoting the Civil War. That Civil War was not between the North and the South. It was between the United States and the Democratic Party, which had been split away by Rothschild's interference in our lives.
1: I think you found
2: something here,
1: Patrick, to chew on. This is a big thing to digest and mull over and learn about our country's, the true nature of our country's history. Man. The audio thing is wrapped tonight, guys, but uh, we will be adding to this when Patrick comes back after the new year. We won't be, next week will be our last show, everyone, and then we're off for two weeks and, Patrick, uh, you can come back on, uh, say, the second or third or fourth week in, in January. How about that?
2: Works for me. I have no problem with that.
1: Okay. And at now, some point, uh,
2: we ought to one more compile these here.
1: audio clips. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, credit. if anybody – I don't know if we have two people or 200 people out there, but if anybody knows somebody in government or Congress or in local government – And they're not Jewish, not an anti-Semitic statement, but they're not Jewish, because a Jew will do everything they can to protect Rothschild. Rothschild is the reason for the Holocaust, that syndicate of Jews within the Jewish population are an interesting criminal group. They're Mm -hmm. terrible. But if anybody knows somebody in government that's gonna be home for the holidays and you wanna steer them to this lecture, I would highly recommend it uh, before you go
1: Patrick do you want to uh, give us a teaser on at some point your your larger plans you don't have to give it away tonight but just a little teaser. Mm-hmm.
2: I can't I, I can't do it until it's okay. done or starts okay and it'll start it sounds
1: it's good supposed to have
2: started three weeks respect ago Respect that
1: respect that respect that okay uh, before we close tonight uh, anybody out there a comment or a question for, for Patrick real quick and then we'll do a I right. I have a question. <clears throat> a question this is Al Jordan I have a question
2: how does Meyer Amschel figure into all of this he was the father of the whole family going back into I think it was probably uh, they recorded him Meyer Amshell Bauer changed into Meyer Amschel Von Rothschild which is a bunch of bullshit the name is Bauer and he chose Rothschild as, a, as, a, as a, a symbolic gesture towards the red shield. Uh, as you watch their information morph over the years, and I call it Morphopedia today, George Soros is a major contributor to, to Wikipedia, and Wikipedia I still find reliable, but it's becoming more reliable because I save what I see, and then I save it again, and I see the distinctions, the slight and subtle changes. But uh, Meyer M. Schell Bauer, which would have been the original Rothschild is, is, uh, There's no way to distinguish him. He was just the he was the, the founder of the family, and the beginning of a business template. That's all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The only reason I mentioned that is I read Roths, is heirs, in London on a repeated basis.
2: Um, I'm sorry. Say that again. Uh, what's that?
1: I said. I said. Say that he broke a- up. I ran, I ran, I ran up to them and repeatedly in London in the backing and insurance community. Um, and then I ran up to them again in New York, and they were all related. Right. I
2: mean, there's probably 20 or 30 of them, and they all, and they were all they don't run the banks, they only own the banks.. <laughs> kind of well, you have to be careful. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure all the Rothschilds know of what the overall plan is. I think they do. Um, but I think there are probably some that are never brought into the fold and you have to have only yeah. one as the leader. I'm one of them the titular head okay. of the whole thing. Um, but they use the Mossad. Um, uh, if you look up, look up Jacob Cohen, C O H E N mm-hmm. and say him S A Y I N E N I am something like that saying him, and he will instruct right. you. He's a Jew. He's a good man. He's a Jew. He's in Morocco now. And he's YouTube, and he'll tell you how the Mossad, they can spread the word about getting somebody literally in an hour throughout the entire world. There will be bad press for a human being in California if they want to bring him down. They, 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 they spread the word like, in, like, like blood in the water for a shark. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein is, a, is an operative to get the, the goods for blackmailing certain people, the judges if you will, sure. and high, people in high places. That's all part of the protocols. You'll see it in there in the fifth generation warfare. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein is uh, was one of the more effective, higher-up uh, blackmailing individuals. Uh, the woman in court right, right now, she knew this too. No, they're a brilliant scheming group of people, and I think you have to be extremely careful. For all I know, you're Jewish. I don't know if you're Jewish, but the Jews are innocent, even if they do know of what the Rothschild family does. Uh, it would be like being in a family with with a mob figure back in the in the 30s and 40s. Well, uh, Aunt Maria and, and cousin Tony might know about another cousin who was a bad guy. The fact that they knew about them and they protected them didn't make them bad people. So the Jews have got to take honor, take take ownership of this eventually if they want to free themselves from anti-Semitism, because that has got to stop. The anti-Semitism's got to come to an end, and the only way for that to come to an end is to put the truth out there. All right, uh, all right. Uh, Patrick, uh, most of the Jews aren't
1: Semitic, though. They're Khazars.
2: Uh, you're getting into an area that's irrelevant, with all due respect. Yeah, but they're... Well, I'm, I'm Semitic, but they're, they're Semitic. Semitic. they're, no, they're, they're Khazars. They came from Russia. Khazars. Yeah. No, they came. They came from Kazakhstan before Russia ever was formed, or Khazaria, whatever. Kezar yeah, it. from, from, from the Kazak- Russia, Kazakhstan. You're right. yeah. Well, Khazars, yeah. you, you're absolutely correct about that. The largest issue you will find, if you dig a little deeper, is that there isn't a Jew alive that's got Semitic blood. Not right. One. Right. The Semites were Hebrews, and the five Aramaic countries, or five Aramaic, those that speak the five Aramaic languages, but the Hebrews and the Jews are not one and the same. The Hebrews, the yeah. Hebrews were going the the dinosaur at the time of Christ's death, and the Hebrews, the Hebrews went away and became, careful what I'm going to tell you next, the Hebrews of antiquity are the Palestinians of today. They were forced converted into Islam, and the Jews, the Jews have always been from Russia. What was, what was what was to uh, to become Russia, Khazaria or Khazars, uh, as you say too, uh, was there before Russia was formed. But they're all Russians today. Absolutely correct.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. But, it,
2: but it really it turns into irrelevance. Uh, a Jew, a Zionist, and an Israeli citizen in 2008 took a load off my shoulders, and he wrote a book. I had confirmed that the Jews and the Hebrews never came together. The Jews never, the Hebrews never became the Jews. Never, 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 never. And um, I said, how am I gonna prove that? And in October that same year, that was around uh, probably Ash Wednesday. It was Ash Wednesday of of 2005. And in October of 2005, Shlomo Sand wrote a book, and he waited until he got tenure at the University of Tel Aviv. And the book's title is The Invention of the Jewish People. And his specialty was the creation of peoples throughout the world over the history of time. He's very well equipped, it's a very difficult book to read. But The Invention of Jewish People brings it to a head and he tells the story, and he became an outcast. Um, You look him up, S-C-H-L-O-M-O Sand, S-A-N-D, or Z-A-N-D, however you want to spell it, and you'll find out a lot about him. There are heroes within the Jews. And uh, someday they'll look back and they'll say they are heroes. You got Henry Klein. You look him up. He talks about the, the, the destruction of the world by debt that these people, these Zionists, are doing. And I don't know if all of the Zionists are bad. The, 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 the fantastic stealth that the Rothschild operation maintains, it's unbelievable. And the Mossad operates flawlessly throughout the world, very rarely with violence. And if the violence does show up, it's suicide. The Jew commits suicide. The first thing he's done, he's he's impoverished if he speaks up. He no longer can make friends with money. that doesn't shut him up, he commits suicide. That's the history of what the Mossad does to Jews that speak up. Uh, No, actually, excuse me. You think, uh,
0: you
1: think Israel form greater Israel and take over Syria, Lebanon, and, uh, Iraq and all those countries.
2: That's a distraction. They're looking to have the United States of Israel. That's what they want. And that's only a stepping stone. Rothschild wants a mortgage on every piece of dirt in the world. Right now he's looking at China and he's trying to decide which country he wants to make the victor. That's where we are today. He, they are in the middle of making a decision of bringing a war to the head and who should win. That's where we as a country are today. Wow. Scary as hell. Uh-huh.
1: Wow. wow, Patrick, thank you so much for this installment of, of, of this series of lectures that you promised us. Uh, Installment number two tonight. I look forward to having you back uh, for the new year. Everyone, please uh, think long and hard. Uh, This information uh, so well presented, rephrases, reshapes, or reframes, so to speak, uh, the the understanding of how everything has been going in, in, in in global affairs. In our country is right in the middle of this vice that is uh, slowly turning like like a screw on, on we the people the the every average everyday people um, are are caught right in the middle. Um, Patrick, the comments you made about about the Civil War and the true nature of who is behind that—I uh, heard you say this before, but I think you really hit. If you, you, you delivered that, those comments very well tonight. It was
2: very Thank enlightening. You. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, I, I'll leave you with one last thought, too. Um, if anybody sure. wants to do this, I would like someone to go try to open up a bank account. Use $5 as a starter. Go in, sign the paperwork. If you can get copies of all the paperwork you sign, I want to talk about that. If the person at the bank says, uh, well, I, I can give you these copies, but that paper that you're signing over there, I can't give you a copy of it, but I need your signature. If you run into a situation where a chartered bank in the United States, a federally chartered bank, will allow you to deposit money after you've signed the paperwork, but they won't give you copies of certain of the forms that you had to sign. I'd like to know about that. And then I'm going to teach you something that will absolutely shake you to your core. (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) I got the teaser. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it. Good night, guys. Uh, Everyone, next next week it will be Bob Schultz. And, and and happy Hanukkah. It'll be Schultz, Carl Swenson, and Paul Nally. Uh, we're going to wrap up that that grand jury information and presentation next week. So, thank you, Steve thank and you. Dee, Dee and everyone listening. Thanks, Al, for the comments. Sam, for the comments. Patrick Wright. will be back next year sometime. Thanks, Patrick. Thank that you. Bless you. Happy New Year.
2: And Merry thank Christmas
1: you. To you. Thank you. Time. Bye now. See you guys. All next right. Week.
0: Good night. Good night. 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 Yeah. We've been taken. Country's done. A U N, American Underground Network. Country's over. No hope (laughs) for the country. We're done.
2: Yep.